0: What is knowledge? How do we attain knowledge? And how can we be sure that we actually know what we think we know? I'll be discussing those questions shortly with today's guest. Inside Out with Nick Holt. I love you. My guest on today's program is a man named Nevin Kleimenhager. He is a senior research fellow at the De Anoja Institute of Philosophy at the Australian Catholic University. He's received a PhD in philosophy at Notre Dame as well as a Masters of Arts in philosophy from Western Michigan University and a Bachelor of Arts in Humanities and Peace and Conflict Studies from the Messiah College. Today I'm going to be talking to Nevin about knowledge and the theory of knowledge, which philosophers call epistemology. Nevin, perhaps we can start by having you explain to the folks at home, and me, what epistemology is.
1: So so epistemology is the study of knowledge and belief. So two key questions in epistemology. One, which you alluded to, is what do we know? Uh, When do we know something to be true? And the other is, when is belief rational? So what should we believe to be true?
0: And how, do we, how can we actually know that what we think we know is true?
1: Right. So there are a number of different theories that philosophers have defended about what we know, about what knowledge is, um, and similarly about when we ought to uh, believe something. Um, with respect to knowledge... Uh, My own view is a view that's called infallibilism. So this is the view that we know only those claims that are certain for us. Um, So let me give you an example that illustrates this. So suppose that you have a ticket in a hundred ticket lottery and only one of the hundred tickets is going to win. The rest are going to lose. And let's suppose that, in fact, ticket number 47 is going to win. Um, You have ticket number one, um, but you don't know that which ticket's going to win, uh, or you don't know the ticket number forty-seven is the winner, I should say. So in this case, in this case, suppose you think to yourself, well, there are hundred tickets in the lottery. Um, The chance that my ticket is the winner is very low, one percent. So that gives me very good reason to think that my ticket will lose. So I'm going to believe that my ticket will lose. Well, in this case. You believe that your ticket will lose. In fact, it will lose. You're right about that. And your belief has good reasons. You've got good reasons to think your ticket will lose. But it doesn't seem like you know that your ticket will lose, because there's a chance that it won't. So that kind of example suggests that you don't have knowledge until you have certainty, until the probability is 100% that your belief is true.
0: Right. So this is like someone suggesting that they knew the coin toss was going to come up heads. It wasn't a lucky guess. That was prior knowledge that they had.
1: Right, right. And so sometimes we might say, oh, I knew that would happen. But really, it seems like what we mean is I was very confident. Certainly many things that we take ourselves to know that we don't in fact know, and that's going to be true in any theory of knowledge. Um, Any theory of knowledge is going to imply that oftentimes when we we thought we took ourselves to know something, but we didn't actually know it. Um, one very easy way to see this is that we often take ourselves to know things that are false. And all philosophers agree, practically all philosophers agree, that you can't know things that are false. Uh, but my theory goes a bit farther than um, than other theories. So many philosophers are fallibilists. That means they think that knowledge is compatible with some degree of uncertainty. Uh, but my theory says that We can only know propositions that are certain and very few propositions are completely certain. Usually when we believe things, there's some chance that we're wrong. And so that implies that there's even less knowledge than we might take ourselves to have when we're being relatively sober and thinking it through. Mm -hmm. So not just we're not just wrong when we say, oh, I knew that that coin would land heads or I knew that uh, my sports team would win that game. But um, let me. I give you another kind of example so suppose that you're looking outside and you see a tree outside um it's controversial whether when you have that kind of you can directly see something whether that's certain for you but let's suppose you look away then do you know that the tree is still there i think that on my theory the answer has to be no because it's possible that the tree was just uprooted in a uh you know a wild storm or that it just disappeared due to some quantum fluctuation or something. That's sure. extremely unlikely, but um, it is it is possible. And so my theory will imply you don't know that the tree is still there outside of your window.
0: But even if the tree is not uprooted, they don't have the evidence at hand to say that that tree exists.
1: Um, it? Right. Yeah. So whether or not, so it's the idea isn't that um, actually the tree was uprooted, and so, so you don't know. The idea is that it's possible for all you know, that that's happened. And because it's possible, then you don't know. You'd need to be able to rule that out, um, to say with certainty that the tree is still there, in order to know
0: it. Yeah, so, so I'm arguing that you don't even need that uncertainty to come into the picture, because you have the very fact that the person can't see the tree. That's the only evidence required to say that they don't have the knowledge to know that tree exists.
1: Right. Yeah. So now you're asking a question about the sources of knowledge and your idea is, well, if you can't see it, then there's no way that it could be certain for you that it could be something that, you know, Um, because now it's 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 distant from anything that you have direct access to, whether it's still outside your window. So, yeah, I would agree with that as well.
0: Okay. so even though I can't see the tree, I believe it to be there and I feel as though I can justify that how can I transform that belief into knowledge?
1: Um, right. So if you, so let's suppose for the sake of argument that you don't know that there is a tree outside, but you, you still think, well, it's, I think that there's a tree outside. I believe there's a tree outside, even if I can't be certain that there is. And then I ask you, well, why do you think that? Um, and then you start giving reasons. And so this is the, this is, um, where questions about what makes a belief rational or justified come in. What kinds of reasons do you have to give or be able to give for your belief that there's a tree still outside your window for that belief to be a rational or reasonable one to hold? And right, um, so there's a debate between so-called internalists and externalists over whether uh, those reasons have to be things that are internally accessible to you that um, they have to bottom out in something that uh, is in your mind so one kind of view which is the kind of view an infallibilist might take is to say that ultimately you're going to end up to end up with reasons that have to do with how things seem to you that have to do with your own experiences so your own experiences are something that plausibly at least you can be completely certain of so even if so we can get even more skeptical than we were a moment ago and say, all right, I'm looking at the tree, but maybe it's just a hologram. Maybe there's you know some kind of uh, deceptive technology going on, and what I see is not actually a tree. But even if that's true, and, and you ask me, well, why do you think that there's a tree there? I can still say, well, I can go back to something even further than that, and that's that it seems to me that I see a tree, that I'm having this certain kind of experience. Mm. And at that point, it doesn't look like I can be mistaken about that. And so if you ask me again, well, why do you think that? Well, then it looks like that's kind of a weird question. Like I can just directly, I have direct access to my own experiences. And so I don't believe that I'm having this experience on the basis of some other belief. Rather, that's just a basic belief or a foundational belief. And
0: that's, and also, something, sorry, that yeah, on my,
1: that's something on my view that I think you could know. You can know that you're having certain experiences because that's something that is certain
0: for you. And also perhaps certain for the other person or people who have seen that tree and hold the same view if there are a hundred people looking at the tree then the burden of proof lies on the skeptic right
1: right yeah we need to be a little bit careful so you could be certain of your experiences i can be certain of my experiences um but in in as much as i can see that you are giving certain testimony or at least that it seems to me that you're giving certain testimony that can make me more confident not in my own experiences but in the inference Mm from my experiences to my belief about what the world is like.
0: So one piece of information that you had emailed me through uh, refers to Antarctica and says that if someone asks you to justify a belief, you're likely to cite other beliefs you have. In this case, I know that Antarctica exists because I believe that maps are generally trustworthy and they claim that Antarctica exists. We're in a very interesting time right now in terms of justifying beliefs about specious knowledge. If we replace Antarctica and maps with the news and mainstream media, we're seeing a situation where some people are doubling down on the trustworthiness of the news they receive, whereas others are rejecting its veracity.
1: Right. Well, that's an interesting kind of example because most of our beliefs about the world are like the Antarctica belief that you Uh, mentioned just a minute ago, like our belief that Antarctica is a continent uh, on the the South Pole. That's almost probably nobody listening to this has been to Antarctica, uh, or at least very few people have. Um, So that's not something that most of us believe on the basis of any kind of personal experience. Rather, we believe it because, uh, you know, it's in maps and encyclopedias and so on, and there's this indirect uh, testimonial chain from people who have been there, who have the direct evidence um, to the rest of us. And as I say, most of our beliefs are like this, because we aren't in a position to directly confirm what distant parts of the world are like, or what the distant past is like, um, or even scientific beliefs and so on. We rely on the claims of other people and of experts. And one of the difficulties that um, this creates is that then, In the current kind of environment as you say where there's increasing distrust in the media um, on the one hand we don't have a great way of most people don't have a great way of telling what's going on in um like with various political matters directly they have to rely on secondhand sources but then if um they think those sources are untrustworthy and perhaps with good reason think they're untrustworthy then it creates a kind of epistemic crisis uh, where most people don't have a good way of getting access to this, maybe they end up relying on less reliable sources. Um, and you can get things like polarization and echo chambers as a result of that.
0: Right. And the knowledge that the media is presenting to the public is being conveyed using methods that don't reveal the fullness of truth. Um, a lot of imagery is being used, even with headlines, right? So therefore, you have a lot of partial and even some incorrect knowledge being circulated as bona fide truth. If we take the, um, what the media called the insurrection of the Capitol building, for instance, the front page of papers, websites, 24-hour news stations, they're all showing an image that made the Capitol building actually look like it was on fire, when, of course, it wasn't. So if you're one of those people who has doubled down on your trust in the media, you're going to form your knowledge on those images and headlines, largely because they they pull on the, the heartstrings more. So in many ways, the media is going fishing for our emotions and senses, aren't they?
1: Right. Um, and yeah, I mean, it's certainly the case that particular, that images can be very powerful, images and video, and those can uh, very much influence people's belief. And uh, I don't want to get into the specific example necessarily, but um, I, I do agree that, there can be like selective images and selective things that are, um, that are portrayed that, that then people can pick up on.
0: So one of the philosophers who questioned what we know was René Descartes. And I'll let my guest talk more about that in a second. But Descartes essentially started from the premise that he knew nothing and then began to develop knowledge that he could know for certain. Uh, he did this through a series of experiments Nevin, are we at a stage now where we need to rebuild and justify some of the things we've been told and believed by the mainstream media?
1: Yeah, so, and, and I can explain um, the kind of project that Descartes entered into in a minute. I do think that the current media environment has uh, made a lot of people recognise the need to be critical uh to be critical appraisers of of news and of information and to not um, just unwilling to not to just unwittingly um, believe anything they read. And that goes both for mainstream sources and for um, less mainstream sources. And you certainly have people who who will credulously um, trust any number of sources. And so so Descartes, so Descartes project that you alluded to, um, he said, Most of my beliefs are uncertain. I can't tell for certain whether they're true. Um, How do I figure out what's true? Well, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to start with things that I couldn't be wrong about. I'm going to start with those, and then I'm going to see what can I build back up from that foundation. And there's some interpretive controversy over exactly um, how he thought about that building back up process. My own view, I. I'm very sympathetic with the Cartesian project in, in broad strokes. My own view is that that building back up process doesn't have to get us to certainty for the beliefs that we build back up, but that it only has to get us to high probability. That's and that right, that's yeah. that's a more reasonable practical standard. And so we start with beliefs of ours that are certain that we couldn't be wrong about, and that might be pretty limited, but what we do from there is to then ask, what other beliefs do these support? What is the best explanation of the experiences of mine that I can be certain of? And that doesn't necessarily mean that we should be completely distrustful of news sources or of experts in general. It might be that we look at the the data that we have and we find, oh, these sources are pretty reliable. Um, Like, from what I know, from what I can tell, it it looks like these sources are pretty reliable, or at least they're pretty reliable in these particular domains. And so I don't think that this kind of Cartesian project means that we just shouldn't trust anyone else or should try to figure out everything for ourselves directly. I think that it can lead us to rationally um, trust certain news sources on certain things, um, and other kinds of experts, scientific experts and so on. um, But to do so in a nuanced and critical way to say, is this the kind of thing that uh, this source tends to be reliable about? Would they have, for example, would they have incentives to um, to mislead or to misrepresent something? Um, or is it something where they were is it something that they're in a position to uh, directly verify themselves? Those are the kinds of questions that you could ask. Um, And you could look at their track record on things that you can check up on, like on areas where you're an expert, where you have some relevant knowledge. You could ask, are they reliable when they report on that? So those are the kinds of things that you might, um, the kinds of considerations you might use to then figure out how confident you should be in claims that you read in the media or in things that scientists say and so on.
0: The problem, though, is that people either, A, don't have the time to critically analyse what they're being told by the media or B, they aren't conscious of the myths' truths. So by default, they aren't being critical. And that's the challenge, isn't it? For everyone to be able to critically analyse everything they're being told by the media.
1: Yeah, certainly that's a fair question. And the fact that it is difficult for many people to do that in in a really careful, systematic way is part of what can lead to an epistemic crisis um, when media become more biased or less reliable or more polarized and people become more distrustful of them. I I do think that people do this in a kind of implicit way. Um, So even people who aren't, who have no training in philosophy, who haven't thought through things um, in as explicit a way as as I just laid out, they do think, well, um, I don't trust this news source because look, they said this, but that contradicts my personal experience or it contradicts um, what I know to be true on this other basis. And I'm not necessarily saying that those are that that's always good reasoning. Um, but I think that something like this is going on in a lot of cases. And my hope, and maybe this is optimistic or naive, but my hope as, a, as an educator is that in teaching people philosophy that we could bring this out and help them to do this better, even if they're not going to end up you know, thinking through everything carefully and explicitly, help them to see you're already doing this to some extent, and then let's see if we can, if you can do it in um,
0: a more careful way. I want to move on to a different area now, and an area that you research in, an area that I personally find quite fascinating, uh, and that is the philosophy of religion. Now, you also research and specialize in The philosophy of science. Now, there are a lot of people who argue that the two can't coexist. You can't have science and you can't have religion together. So if you were at a bar and you were having a drink, do you drink? What's your drink? I I like red wine. Okay. So you're having a red wine and, (laughs) and an atheist is next to you. And he says to you, I don't believe in God. I believe in science. How would you counter-argue that?
1: Yeah. So to bring it to the topic of religion and science, and if the atheist is thinking, as I think many atheists who would be skeptical about philosophy of religion um, would be, they would they would be very trusting of science. Um, I might ask, well, what, on what basis they trust science or think that the um, the claims of science are probably true. um what what's their epistemology of science? And my own view is that um I do think that there are, in specifics, there are important differences between the domains um, between scientific reasoning and religious reasoning. Um, but I don't think that there's some kind of in principle difference that means that we can know things in science and we can't know them in religion or we can rationally believe scientific theories, but we can't rationally have any theological beliefs. Can you
0: expand on that a bit?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, So to start with the question about knowledge, so my own view, as I said, is one on which we don't have a lot of knowledge. Um, Most things that we believe are uncertain to some degree. And to that extent, um, I would endorse a moderate skepticism about both domains. So I would say that we can't know that special relativity is true, or that Darwin's theory of evolution is right, or that God exists or doesn't exist, or the contents of the Nicene Creed, or anything that you could come up with Mm. uh, in in these domains. But that leaves open, and and indeed I think it's the case, that we can reasonably believe many claims in these domains. Uh, And I do think that many scientific theories and some theological claims are well evidenced and that we can be highly confident that they're true.
0: So I've been an atheist and now a Catholic, and I think it can be difficult for an atheist to form a cogent argument against another person's certainty of his or her own knowledge of a personal God. But despite my own belief in that knowledge, which is based on evidence from the external world as well as my personal faith, I could never argue for certain that God exists, right? And that, that
1: is... Uh... That is um, that does contradict the claims of many distinguished theologians, for example. So Aquinas, for example, thought that the existence of God could be proven with certainty. Um, that's what his his proofs of uh, proofs of God were supposed to do. And I don't think that that's possible. I think that we have evidence for theism, but I think that it only makes it probable to some degree. I think it's I think it's Uh, fairly highly probable but um i I do think that the distinction between that and certainty is important and that's a distinction that again to come back to religion and science that that doesn't necessarily mean that um, this isn't like a strike against theism uniquely because this is true of science too scientific theories too uh, many of our scientific theories are extremely well confirmed by the data it's very unlikely that they're false But it's still possible. It's still possible that we're wrong about special relativity or whatever, whatever it is. And so this uh, concession, I think, is one that Christians and theists should be willing to make um, and and that does help to open up dialogue with the atheist. Um, But once we make it, then it's not to say that Christian or theistic belief is irrational. It's to say that it's like science. We have to look at the total evidence and see how probable um, is our religious belief given that total evidence and that and that then to come back to um, some of the other things you said uh it was interesting to me because you said at one point um that it wasn't based on uh corporal thing corporeal things or something like that um but then you also talked about order and beauty as reasons for your christian belief and i would say that those are uh, examples of possible evidence for the existence of God and for Christianity. Um, but I think that there are imp- that, that's empirical evidence. Um, so it's it's evidence that is in, at least in some sense, like scientific evidence. Um, and so I think that those kinds of what are sometimes called natural theological evidences, that there is again an analogy with science, and that we're looking to the natural world. And we're asking, what's the best explanation of, for example, uh, the high degree of order that we see in the universe or the simplicity of the, of, um, the natural laws, of, of the laws of physics?
0: Mm. Yeah, I guess I'm not suggesting that there is insufficient evidence there um, in terms of intelligent design and beauty and order, mathematics. It's just the other side of the coin is one's own personal faith. So, and that doesn't rely solely or in some instances at all on the physical world. So I will often meet atheists in the middle, more so when we're talking about the structure and order and the beauty of the world.
1: Yeah, and I do think that pointing to things like um, the order in the universe and natural theology is, I think you're right, that it generally is uh, more persuasive. Um, that it's more effective as an apologetic strategy. Um, I do think that it's important to also consider factors like um, one's own religious experiences, experiences in prayer, and so on. And I would take there what I I would like to think is maybe a more moderate position. So on the one hand, I think that it's wrong to say that that kind of thing can't be evidence. I think evidence can be anything at all. Um, We have to start with as I said, with our own experiences, and then see what best explains those, what those make probable. Um, And so in principle, those can be like part of the epistemic calculation. And so atheists who would want to say the only things that can be relevant to what we believe are like the results of scientific experiments in a lab, that's too restrictive. Yes. But then we do have to ask the question, well, what do these experiences actually support? What's the best explanation of them? And then we have to consider skeptical hypotheses that would say, well, when you have this religious experience, then you, you take yourself to be communing with God. Um, but really, there's a naturalistic explanation we can give of that. And I think that religious experiences of, of some kinds can be difficult to explain naturalistically, um, but I don't take that to be a... Uh, conclusive case. I think there's, there's an argument to be had there.
0: Okay, we'll leave it there for today. Nevin, where can my listeners find your writings?
1: Uh, yeah, so if you Google my name, um, Nevin Kleimanhager, you will, uh, N-E-V-I-N-C-L-I-M-E-N-H-A-G-A, uh, you can find my website, um, and I keep that pretty up to date with my latest publications.
0: Nevin Kleimanhager, thanks for being on the program. All right, thanks for having me on. Inside Out with Nick Holt.